This is They Create Worlds, episode 85, Computer Game Basics. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Last time, we did way more computer history than I think anyone was expecting. (laughs) Good computer history, though. Good computer history. And very relevant computer history. I really think that between that episode and the two episodes we did on the Sillywood era, really laid the groundwork of where we could potentially go with episodes in the future, because it really sets the stage as to where things have gone, especially with computers and video game interactivity. Absolutely. So, since last time we went over our impromptu computer science courses, and if you were excited to go into the show notes and practically get an education in that... We're now going to delve a little bit more into the games and really how now that everything is multi-user environment, we can have things like MUDs and MUCs and... Wait, wait, wait. We do, we do games on this podcast? On occasion. Oh, shoot. Not sure I'm ready for that. Well, there's an Atari over there. You can start with that and work our way up from there. <laughs> well, we'll be working our way well before Atari, though, <laughs> in many ways, systems that are quite more technically adept than that uh, little 2600 over there. Uh, We're, of course, talking about now that we have defined timesharing and defined how timesharing was beginning to spread at the end of the 1960s, we can turn our attention specifically to the consequences of that with games. Because space war aside, when you're talking about the early, early stuff, and there wasn't that much of it, when you're talking about the early, early stuff, it never really went anywhere. There was no place for it to go. Computers were big. They were expensive. Very few people could use them. Very few operations could be run on them in a given day. You didn't have USB drive to hand it over to Bob and say, here, play my game. (laughs) Exactly. You didn't have many high-level languages. You didn't have universal uh, operating environments, operating systems. You know, you just didn't, you didn't have all of that stuff. But thanks to time sharing, thanks to basic, Thanks to the spread of particularly time-shared mini-computers, now you're getting computing into a lot of places, uh, mostly colleges and schools, secondary schools, and you are getting a whole new user base that, uh, with something as simple as basic, can take real advantage of that environment and start making things. And you get an environment where people are actually encouraged to start making things. So this period, at the very end of the 1960s, is where you see some of the very, very first games that would go on to be relevant for many years afterwards. Some of the very first games that a lot of people played on microcomputers in the mid to late 1970s or even the early 1980s had their origins in the late 1960s, early 1970s on these time-sharing systems. So we want to talk about some of those games And we also want to talk about how they spread, because even having a game on one time-sharing network means that suddenly you've increased your user base by literally hundreds. But as the 70s progressed, as we'll see, there were ways to get these computers even between different people's time-sharing networks. So you're talking about games spreading across the entire United States and potentially even beyond. And that's something 
that was very new in the late 1960s, early 1970s that we just didn't have before. And is that sort of stems from the early interconnected networks sort of morphing into the ARPANET and so on into the internet? So that's a whole, that's a whole nother episode. Oh, goody. Um, <laughs> and one we'll probably do sometime, not in the near future. But we're going to kind of stay away from that side of things. These time-sharing networks were not really part of what would become the internet. The entire idea of a time-sharing network is that you do just have one computer, and that one computer is sharing its information or sharing its resources across dozens or hundreds of terminals, and they really are dumb terminals. Uh, The internet is kind of the network of networks, and that's when you decide that you want to take a bunch of computers and you want to link them all together, and that takes a whole different degree of jiggery-pokery. And, you know, things like the Dartmouth time-sharing system were never part of the internet. Now, some commercial time-sharing services did become part of the internet. CompuServe started out as a time-sharing service, a commercial time-sharing service. It was not just an internet service provider. So, yes, sort of, but the networks that we're talking about didn't really fall into that internet evolution. All right, so where do we start off as far as the games go? We basically just talked about the Dartmouth timeshare system last time. That's the main thing that we focused on in terms of timesharing. And uh, we kind of hinted at the fact that in the late 1960s, after the success of the DTSS and after General Electric's success with the DTSS, you had first commercial timesharing services starting to come into being. And then you had many computer companies starting to really push their products in the schools, and particularly DEC and HP, which were two of the most important many computer companies. You know, this is one story of computing that the West Coast and Silicon Valley really comes to quite late. We're going to get Silicon Valley involved in this story, and certainly HP is in Silicon Valley. But this is not, as so many personal computing stories are, a Silicon Valley story. This is primarily a story of the East Coast and the Midwest. Before there was Silicon Valley, or to put it more accurately, in a time when Silicon Valley really did just mean silicon, it really just meant this is where the chips get made, there was a technology corridor in Boston that was called the Route 128 Corridor because a lot of companies popped up along Route 128 in the Boston area. This was a technology revolution that was based around MIT and Digital Equipment Corporation primarily. Also, other defense contractors like BBN, Bolt, Baronic, and Newman, other mini computer companies like Data General and Wang, all kind of built up in this area. And this is really where the birth of timesharing was. This is where, uh, you know, Dartmouth as well is not in Massachusetts, but it's in New Hampshire. It's part of this kind of wider New England technological scene. This is ground zero for a lot of these activities, mainly because this is where the mini computer companies are. With the exception, you've got HP and Varian on the West Coast, but a lot of the mini computer industry is concentrated in this area. So a lot of the very important early games that get made are in this New England area or in the uh, New York area, which, of course, is the home of a little company called IBM. 
once the DTSS proved its viability and once this was starting and once the mini computer companies got in, a lot of other school districts and universities got involved with this idea of time sharing and they really were trying to tie it in with the concurrent idea of computer-assisted instruction, which we also talked about last time. And so that's where a lot of the very first games that are coming out in this time period come from. In terms of the significant games, the first one actually predates time-sharing, and uh, that's Hammurabi. We're going to talk about its story in a little bit because it links into some other things. In terms of the time-sharing games, the, the first significant one, I think, really came in 1969. In Lexington, Massachusetts, and in the surrounding communities, five school districts decided to get together once all of this time-sharing stuff started and pool their resources. We talked about the ability of school districts to do this, to establish their own time-sharing network that would allow the students in all of the schools within these five communities centered on Lexington to have access to computer resources. And they originally, for the first year of this, I believe, they did it through a time-sharing company that had a big mainframe, and then they leased time uh, and had the terminals installed and, you know, through the phone lines and everything. But then they learned about what DEC was doing, because, of course, DEC's Massachusetts, Maynard, Massachusetts. And so they actually ended up buying three PDP-8 systems, these edu systems that DEC marketed specifically at schools, so that they could run the whole network off of computers they owned themselves, because these mini computers, even buying several of them, uh, is still a lot cheaper than buying a mainframe. And you're doing high school stuff. You don't need something that is the be-all and end-all of processing power to let high school students fiddle around with basic, <laughs> right? So Lexington became a hotbed uh, for programmers making games. And you have to understand every place that had time-sharing going on, where students were involved, there were games being made. People were making, as we said last time, sports games, board games, number guessing games, basic mathematical puzzle games. You know, this kind of thing was going on. But, I mean, those are a dime a dozen. I mean, you want to talk about significant games. The significant games are the ones that did things that hadn't really been done before in a pen and paper kind of setting and which were distinct enough that, you know, they carried forward and you know, obviously there are baseball games still today, but you can't, or football games, but you can't really say that John Madden football exists because there was a Dartmouth football game. I mean, there's, there's no connection there. It's logical that somebody somewhere is going to do a football simulation and they don't link. So the really important games are the ones where it's like somebody made this and then it captured imagination and that unique game continued to persist. And there were a few of those in Lexington. But the most significant was created by uh, a guy named Jim Storer, a high school student, in 1969. Something kind of important happened in 1969. Nah. Uh, around July-ish, people were taking steps or something like that. I thought we were supposed to kill them all on sight. No? You never watched Doctor Who. Oh, well, that's true. <laughs> I don't watch Doctor Who. So there, there we go. I, I have to turn in a portion of my nerd cred there. <laughs> I'm sure it was an excellent reference that our listeners will greatly enjoy hearing. Especially our British listeners. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, I mean, that's the year of the moon landing, right? Mm-hmm. And this was a big deal. And this is obviously something that captured the attention of all of America and certainly captured the attention of high school students uh, as much as anybody. And so Jim Storer, the high school student, decided that when he got back to school in the fall, because, of course, this was July, it was during summer vacation, he wanted to get on his uh, their project local timesharing network, 
uh, that he was part of and create some kind of lunar landing game. So that's what he did. His his father uh, had some technical education. I don't know exactly what his father did, but I know his father knew something about it. So he got some of the advanced equations from his father, but he created a text-based. Remember, just about everything is going to be text-based because you are interacting via teletype mm-hmm. or typewriter. So he creates a text-based game where you have a lunar module and you have thrust and you have gravity and you have velocity and you have all of these complex physics things going on and your job is to safely and smoothly land your lunar module on the surface of the moon without running out of fuel because you have limited fuel and without coming in so hard and hot that you uh, crash and destroy yourself. Much like how Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were trying to do it in reality. Exactly. So he creates the, a, a lunar landing game. And, uh, you know, some of you are thinking right now, oh, yeah, didn't Atari make a lunar landing game? Yes. They stole it. Well, yeah, no. And I mean, they didn't steal it because, of course, remember, this is all public domain. Nobody is charging for programs. Nobody is selling programs. Nobody's doing anything. But there is a direct line. We'll talk about this uh, in a little bit. There is a direct line from Jim Storer's 1969 lunar lander game to Atari's 1979 Lunar Lander game. I mean, it is directly, with a couple of intervening steps, influenced by that original Lunar Lander. This is a concept that becomes very significant. Lunar Lander games proliferate across microcomputer platforms in the late 70s. Both here and elsewhere in the United Kingdom, a Lunar Lander game was one of the very first commercial games released on one of the very first commercial kit computers in the late 1970s. So, I mean, this is, this is a big concept. And Heck, I remember playing a Lunar Lander game on Windows 3.1. Yeah, exactly. One of our listeners, Virtuoso Engine, actually made the entire Lunar Lander program in Python and details it in his own channel called Making Games Year by Year. It's a really interesting to look at that recreation of the software of Lunar Lander in a modern context. The great thing about these games, these early games is you couldn't do that much with them because you didn't have a lot of memory. Most of these games are strategy-based games. Now, obviously, the later Lunar Lander games are real-time, but the first one's not. The first one's turn-based because you have a couple of limitations here. You do have that limitation if you're doing a teletype and, you know, to have that thing just constantly spitting out paper in real time would be a bit of a... (laughs) You'd end up drowning in paper. But even if you were on a computer that had a, a VDT, a video display terminal, which as the 1970s progressed became more and more common, you still have the problem that even though your computer has a lot of memory, it's a time-shared computer and that memory is being shared with hundreds of people. These computers actually had less capability, for the most part. There, there are some exceptions, but a lot of these computers actually had less capability to do action games, to do real-time action games, than your little old Atari VCS. Because even though your Atari VCS has 128 bytes of memory, that memory belongs to that Atari system at all times. It can rely on it always being there for it. Whereas in a time-shared system, you cannot always rely on having all the memory you need at any given time. Let alone the processing time. And let alone the cycles. Exactly. A turn-based game where it has to do calculations behind the scenes 
it can do your turns relatively quickly. Uh, you know, the memory management is good in that sense, but the memory isn't and the and the processing time both are really not good enough to do real time action most of the time. You don't have an ASCII version of Doom where you can run around and get the other user, shoot them with little periods or whatever. Right. And, you know, as time goes on, some of that stuff uh, starts to appear. But, you know, in this this early time period, it's just like, no, there's just you don't have the processor often enough. You don't have gobs of memory at your disposal. So you have to keep it turn based. So a lot of these games are strategic games. A lot of these are turn based games, but they're simple by necessity, but they're also fun. And they're public domain. They're free. So a lot of these games do end up showing up even on Windows systems because they're very easy to program. You can throw a little graphical sophistication in it to make them look nicer. If it's something like Lunar Lander, you can real time it rather than turn base it. And you can just bundle it with stuff because, you know, it didn't cost you anything to make it really. And, uh, you know, you didn't have to license it from anywhere. So that's part of why these games keep recurring. That's a good example. You know, this was Project Local is what they called themselves. It was a time-sharing co-op between five towns in Boston. They had three PDP computers. I think it was just three. I don't think they bought one for each town, but uh, they had several PDP-8 computers after DEC got into the education market that were dedicated to letting people get on the computers. And when people, when their students got on the computers, they turned towards games and something you know original and quite interesting came out of that with Lunar Lander. Another example of this is, is one that happened in New York. It was called the Huntington Institute. Uh, this was a true merging of computer-aided instruction and time-sharing. The Huntington Project was run out of Brooklyn Polytechnic, and a professor there got wind of DTSS and got wind of what DTSS was doing with time-sharing and was like, this is a great idea and a great concept to deliver not just computing resources to schools, but computer instruction in schools and experiment with ways to develop curricula that would be useful in a school setting. So he started something called the Huntington Project with Long Island schools, Long Island, New York. You know, they got the time-sharing resources together and there were two things going on. Students were allowed to go on there and do their own thing, but they also created a lot of simulations, games, that simulated various uh, things in order to try to teach problem-solving or resource management skills, that kind of thing. There was one about trying to treat a malaria outbreak. There was another one about water pollution and causes of water pollution and how to try to mitigate that pollution and clean it up. You know, they were doing these kind of educational simulations. There were also students doing their own programs. There was one in 1970. It really didn't go anywhere. This one's not really influential, but there was a guy named Christopher Galo who was a student in uh, Seosset, New York, who created a a little Wild West shootout. And again, it's turn-based because that's what you have to do in this time period. There's you and there's Black Bart, the uh, nefarious bandit or outlaw or whatever. And you start a certain distance away from each other. You each have a certain number of shots. It's five, I believe. And the closer you get to the other player, the more chance that your shot will hit. Well, to each other, it's not a two-player game. The closer you get to your opponent, the greater the chance that your shot will hit. So it's uh, a game where you decide whether you want to move, whether you want to shoot. It's, there's a lot of luck involved. I mean, it's no kind of sophisticated thing, but this is one of the first times that there were kind of snippets of narrative accompanying a computer game because he gave a little description of Black Bart and a little descriptions of the action. 
Uh, it's all text based, of course, so you're not seeing it on the screen. But, you know, you're starting to get this idea that these games can exist in these other worlds. The game was more widely distributed. That's why it survives. Uh, Call a Computer, which was the timesharing service, commercial service that Huntington was using for this. Uh, they were a North Carolina based company, though they also had a, a facility in New York asked if they could distribute that game across their time sharing service. And, uh, you know, Christopher Galo, the high school student, said yes. And so that game survives today. I mean, it probably survives today where dozens like it don't. It's kind of a good illustrative game to show that these students weren't just doing sports games or board games or adaptations of stuff that already existed. They were starting to take the first steps into you know, these these computer games, they can take us into whole other worlds and they can give us narratives and all of that. It's interesting in that sense. Now, probably the most significant of everything that came out of this early time sharing, I'm sure it's fair to say, comes actually not from our East Coast friends here, but actually comes from the state of Minnesota. Minnesota is actually probably the biggest computer technology hub outside of the coasts, outside of your Silicon Valley stuff and your IBM stuff and your Route 128 stuff. Minnesota was actually a happening place with computer technology. I don't know if you knew that or not. I did not. I would not expect that. Well, you know, there were a couple of early companies founded there. I'm not exactly sure why they ended up in, in Minnesota after World War II, but, but they did. A company called Engineering Research Associates, ERA, or ERA, was established very shortly after World War II by a bunch of former naval personnel that had been doing naval cryptography work during the war. And there was a lot of talent kind of concentrated in, in Seesaw. I forget what the acronym means, but Seesaw was this naval cryptology group. There was a lot of talent kind of clustered together in this group that the government didn't want to lose that expertise after the war. So they helped set up this private company, ERA, in Minnesota that was doing early scientific computers. And then ERA was very quickly bought by Univac, the first commercial computing company and what ultimately became one of the seven dwarves as a spare Univac as they merged with another company. Univac in the 1960s still had a, a facility there. Univac itself wasn't headquartered there, but ERA had been. Then uh, out of ERA came Control Data Corporation. It was a breakaway from ERA by William Norris and Seymour Cray. And Control Data, are you familiar with CDC? Mm, apart from the Centers for Disease Control, which is <laughs> probably not what we're talking about here. So you've probably heard of Seymour Cray, right? And Cray Supercomputers? Actually, no. Oh, okay. So Seymour Cray was a genius. And Seymour Cray was the foremost creator of what used to be termed supercomputers, which are just computers that are able to process information just far, far, far more efficiently and better and faster than other computers. Later on, after CDC, he founded his own company, Cray, and Cray supercomputers were a big deal in the 90s and, and whatnot for computation. But before he had Cray supercomputers, he was an employee of Control Data Corporation, and Control Data was known as having the fastest computers around. They were one of the seven dwarves competing with IBM as well, but they really had their niche all to themselves. IBM was never able to come up with computers that were as fast as the commensurate CDC computers. 
And that was quite just, frankly, down to the fact that Seymour Cray was a freaking genius. Mm -hmm. So CDC is a very important computer company, and they're headquartered in Minnesota. IBM has a facility in Minnesota, in Rochester, Minnesota, that does a lot of their uh, peripherals and smaller systems and whatnot. The guy that ended up creating the IBM PC, the PC was done down in Florida because they set up a new division down in Florida for that. But the guy, the main uh, architecture guy on the IBM PC, actually had spent years working in the Minnesota office before that time because that's where those kind of systems were being done. There's a huge computer presence back then in Minnesota and still a half decent one today, I think, though probably not as not as developed as it was back then. So this was actually a computing mecca. So as a result, it was a place that had a lot of people that worked with computers and these people were keeping up on what was going on back in the East with timesharing on all of this. And there was actually a CDC employee named Bob Albrecht that discovered BASIC while he was, was working in Minnesota, discovered the Dartmouth system, and just fell in love with this idea. It changed his life. I mean, it literally changed his life because he went and taught in schools a little bit and taught BASIC, you know, just giving presentations. He didn't become a school teacher, but just watching the kids use BASIC and gain confidence in BASIC and gain confidence in computers and being able to control computers and manipulate computers that was very, very exciting to him. We're going to get back to Bob Albrecht's story in a little bit in this episode because it pertains. But he became a real basic evangelist. And at the very same time that he was doing this, there was a group of mathematics instructors at the University of Minnesota that were looking for ways to integrate computers. Because again, computer-assisted instruction and all of this stuff is kind of becoming buzzwords in the education community right in the same time period. So they're looking into ways to do something about this as well. The University of Minnesota ran, they probably still do run, a model high school called U-High. What this is, is it's, it's a real working high school that students can go to, but it's also a laboratory for the university to experiment with new teaching curriculum, new teaching tools, tactics, etc., so it's, it's a Petri dish, but also a real working school as well. It's not just a laboratory setting. And there was a mathematics graduate student named uh, Dale LaFrenz that was teaching at U-High. Uh, he was getting his master's in mathematics, but he discovered that really mathematics wasn't his thing. I mean, he was good enough to get his bachelor's in it, obviously, but he discovered doing the master's program that he really wasn't really a pure mathematician. But while he was there, he discovered you high and he became involved with that. And he found that he did have an aptitude and a desire to want to instruct students and work on student curriculum. So he and a, a group of his colleagues were starting to ponder, you know, we should work with computers here. <laughs> you know, this is a place to experiment with the cutting edge and computers in the classroom in this mid 60s period, late 60s period. That's the cutting edge, right? So they uh, get this going. And they learned from Bob Albrecht, who was also affiliated with the University of Minnesota at the time with their graduate program, about the DTSS and about this whole timesharing thing and about this whole basic thing. Let me tell you, brother, about the word of basic. <laughs> That's right. They get in touch with Dartmouth and are like, can we be part of your timeshare network, University High? Now, remember, Dartmouth, New Hampshire, U High, Minnesota. For those of you not familiar with our 
United States geography. That's what we would call a bit of a hike. Multiple states. So, you know, they're, they're not exactly close by. So they get in touch with Dartmouth, and Dartmouth's like, oh, yeah, we'll let you connect with the network because, you know, I mean, we have a nationwide phone system, so whatever. I mean, in that sense, the distance doesn't matter. But you're going to have to figure out the connection costs. We'll let you hook up, and it's free to hook up. You know, it's not like they have to pay a fee to be part of it, I don't think. I could be wrong about that. But if they do, it's not a very big fee. But, yeah, you're going to have to figure out your own long-distance costs. And this is back in the time where long-distance actually did cost a significant amount of money for a long-time hookup. These days, at least in the United States, long-distance is more or less free. When Alex and I were kids in the 90s, long-distance still cost money. It cost extra money to call someone out of state. Well, or even out of area code, (laughs) sometimes even in the same state. Yeah. Yeah. Any significant distance, and it could really rack up pretty quickly. Exactly. So, of course, the UHI people do what everyone else is doing at this time. They get a grant, though in this case, it's not from the federal government. They actually get a grant from GE to pay those long distance phone costs. Now, they only ended up connected to Dartmouth for a year because after that, The Pillsbury Corporation, which is also a Minneapolis headquartered company, Pillsbury Corporation bought a computer for their own use. And as a lot of corporations would start doing in this time period, uh, you know, they bought this big fancy computer. Pillsbury didn't really need it 24-7 doing stuff for them. So they figured out that, hey, we can timeshare our system, too, just like these timesharing companies or just like these universities are doing. And we can collect extra money by paying people to be to access our computer when we're not using it. So they they switched to the local option because I mean they had to pay a fee to Pillsbury to be part of it, but they didn't have to pay those long distance fees anymore. Pillsbury was local. It's kind of funny to think of a pastry company being a timeshare computer company. <laughs> exactly, but you know, I mean, just about anybody, you know, once this timesharing thing became big, just about anybody that had a computer and did not need to use it all the time were like, well, you know, time is money, friend. <laughs> Pretty much. I can only imagine a little Pillsbury doughboy pouncing around a computer going, "Hey, come timeshare with us." And then this like mouse comes out and pushes him in the stomach and he goes, Wee-hee! "I don't think they ever did that commercial." I thinking probably not but no this is my wish i I know you you just keep living the dream jeff okay you do that so they weren't with dtss for long but they were with dtss long enough to understand what that system was and to be exposed to basic and to have this whole thing going on so they're doing time sharing at u high well the next step is a group of minneapolis area school districts get together to create their own network About 18 of them, I think, if memory's serving me right. If it's not, it's not important. And this network was called TIES. That was an acronym. And TIES was a timesharing network that the University of Minnesota set up that hooked in most of the schools in the Twin Cities, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. One of these schools was uh, Bryant Junior High School, because this was both high school and junior high school where a couple of mathematics student teachers from Carleton College in Minnesota were doing their student teaching. Two guys named Paul Dillenberger and Bill Heinemann. So there was, in their Bryant Junior High School, where they uh, student taught, there was a computer room, which 
was a janitor's closet with a teletype in it. Sure, let's not perpetuate stereotypes for computer nerds <laughs> with that. But that teletype was hooked into, uh, you know, the computers of, of the Ties network. So it was their uh, gateway to a larger world. So one day, these two guys come home. You see, Carlton College is uh, out in rural Minnesota. So they didn't live in Minneapolis. They didn't go to school in the Minneapolis area. So they rented an apartment uh, with another student teacher that was doing student teaching in history at a northern Minneapolis uh, area school named Don Rawich. And one day, these two guys, Dillenberger and Heinemann, come home and they see something very odd. Their roommate, Mr. Rawich, is down on the floor drawing some elaborate map of some kind or another, perhaps of the western United States. And it's like, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is it turns out that Mr. Rawich was about ready to teach a unit. You know, he'd been observing the class or whatever, and he was going to teach a unit. And his unit that he was going to teach was going to be on Western expansion. And he thought it would be a lot of fun if he and his students played a board game to illustrate Western travel, Western expansion. And he particularly thought that it would be interesting to do a board game that would depict the travel along the famous Oregon Trail. And so, you know, he'd been thinking about that and he was starting to work on it. And so that's what he was working on when his roommates came home. And they're like, what you doing? It's like, well, I'm doing this board game and whatnot. And then, you know, the one turns to the other and says, you know, this is the kind of thing that we could probably do on the computer. Because I think it was Bill Heineman that made the suggestion. He had had some experience with the computer. There was one computer at Carleton College, one programming course offered. And he had taken that course, and he had actually become an assistant then to the professor that taught the course. So he had been exposed to computers in his college education. He had been kind of thinking in the back of his mind, you know, it'd be fun to kind of figure out something hands-on to do with the computer. And so now here's his roommate making this history board game, and it's like, well, there's the thing. Why don't we put this on the computer? And Don's like, okay. (laughs) So, you know, they only have about a week and a half until it's, it's due, but, you know, they don't have to do too much. Kind of the, the framework of the game has already been created. He already knows that he wants them to travel along the Oregon Trail. I was going to do it through die rolls because board game, but when they travel along the Oregon Trail, he wanted them to encounter events that were uh, historically somewhat accurate, good and bad things happening along the trail, believable things, to kind of give this idea of what the hardships would be. So. It was simply a matter of taking this framework, figuring out the geography, converting die rolls into X amount of miles get covered per increment, implementing the need for food as kind of a fuel (laughs) to something that you have to keep track of, a resource that you have to manage, and uh, have some random events happen along the trail that were believable within the terrain that you were in. That was kind of one of the wrinkles they wanted to make sure of on the computer. If you were on the plains, you were more likely to be attacked by bandits. Uh, If you were in the mountains, you were more likely to have some kind of cold weather difficulty. You know, something just vaguely believable like that. And then they implemented a very primitive hunting game. They actually took advantage of the time-sharing system for that. You may recall from your Apple II days. Well, it depends on which version we had. I'm not sure. We may have had a version that was completely... We may have had a version that was completely... We had a DOS version. Yeah, right. So back in the day, rather than the the hunting game involving a mouse or whatever, or a cursor, you know, you actually had to type in, bang. It just so happens that the time-sharing system not only recorded keystrokes, 
but it recorded the amount of time between keystrokes. So they came up with the idea that not only did you have to type the word in, but the faster you typed it, the more successful you were because the computer already happened to keep track of that. So it was a simple matter to do that. So that was the skill-based part of that. The faster you type the word successfully, the more meat you got. So yeah, so they created this game about travel along the Oregon Trail. Again, teletype, text-based, turn-based, but, you know, something a little educational. And so they do the game, you know, in that week and a half, and he uses it. Don uses it in his class. The class loves it. They uh, break into groups. There's only one. His school also has a teletype. His school is also part of Ties. So there is a teletype hooked into the system there, but there's only one. So only one set of kids could do it at a time. So he broke his class into like groups of four and uh, and rotated them through various activities, one of which was the group of four clustering around the teletype playing the Oregon Trail game. And, you know, this is something that people don't always understand. This is not the same Oregon Trail game 100% that you and I and thousands of other children Tens of thousands, (laughs) hundreds of thousands, probably, maybe even millions of school children played as kids because the game received a complete overhaul essentially from scratch by another programmer in 1985 for the Apple II. And it's that Apple II version that is the version that everything after it has built off of. Don't get me wrong. This is the same through line of game. This is the Oregon Trail, the same Oregon Trail that millions of school children have played all over the place. I imagine dysentery isn't so prolific in it. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have a, like, you didn't have a family in, in this first version. It was just, it was just you, the player. <laughs> you weren't keeping track of a whole family, and there were a lot of other things. You didn't have uh, trading posts were not implemented in this. You know, you, you never interacted with other people. You bought supplies at the beginning. Uh, you could have outlaw attacks or bandit attacks occasionally as a random event, but you didn't go to trading posts. I don't believe river fording was part of the original. You know, a lot of stuff changed when it was converted over in 1985, but the 1985 version is an update of the 1971 version. That's when they did this. That is easily the oldest game that had a continuing and constant impact for decades after. That is the oldest video game franchise. I mean, Space War is a decade older and Space War influenced a lot of people, but there was never like a Space War franchise. There is an Oregon Trail franchise and that is the oldest (laughs) one, I think it's fair to say, dating all the way to 1971. And there's even versions of it for modern systems. I think these are some of these are done by more fans of the old Oregon Trail, but you got things like the zombie Oregon Trail director's cut, <laughs> and you're trying to escape a zombie apocalypse. I believe they actually even did a new, fairly recent Oregon Trail card game. They did. They did indeed. There's a franchise that has really taken off in a way that I think is unprecedented for many franchises. Absolutely. And the importance of time sharing in this cannot be overstated. And it's not just because it was created on a terminal in the timesharing system. It's not just because if it wasn't for timesharing, Don Rawich probably would not have had access to a computer. I mean, obviously that was important. But, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, he had worked at a really fancy pants school district that had its own computer and he did it there. Well, once the class was over, there was no need for the program anymore. He did make a paper tape copy of the code. He decided to keep the code, but then it was deleted off the system. 
This is a program that was alive for two weeks, and then it was gone. That should have been the last we ever heard about the Oregon Trail. But then a little thing called the Vietnam War intervened. So Don Rawich was in school to be a teacher, obviously. He was student teaching. Teaching is what he wanted to do. And then his number came up in the draft. You know, when he was graduating, he didn't have his school deferment anymore. He was able to get himself labeled a conscientious objector, which meant that he did not have to actually go to war. You know, he was able to convince them that he was so totally and morally opposed to the war that he shouldn't be forced to fight it. It was against his beliefs. However, if you qualified for an exemption for conscientious objector status, you had to provide an alternate form of service for two years to the government in order for them to say you don't have to serve in the military. You would think that teaching the youth of America would be a very valuable service to America. Nope. Not at all. So becoming a teacher didn't count. He couldn't just then go and be a teacher. He had to find a job that qualified for this consciousness objector status. Meanwhile, at the same time this is going on, or right before this happened, whatever, ties attracted attention at the highest levels of Minnesota state government. So Ties is 18 Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, For those not aware, they're called the Twin Cities because they're literally right across the river from each other. Ties is uh, in 18 Twin Cities area schools. Minnesota's a big state. Minnesota's a very big state. It has, uh, you know, 400-some-odd school districts at this time. And rural legislators in the state, which have uh, gained some power politically during this time period, I don't know all the ins and outs of Minnesota politics, but this was a time when the rural legislative bloc was, was very influential within the doings of the state, not just, you know, the urban guys like in Minneapolis or whatever holding all the power. They're like, you've got this educational network that your children are getting to take advantage of. Why aren't our children getting something like this? Why did just you elites down there in Minneapolis get this system, eh? We deserve this system, too. So they're like, fine, that's great. Do something about it. So the state of Minnesota, and this is, this is unprecedented uh, at the time, actually passes an act to create a statewide timesharing network to provide computer services to all 435, I believe is the number, school districts. In the state of Minnesota. So TIES becomes the MECC, the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium. And it brings timesharing to every single school district in the state of Minnesota. That's remarkable. This is early 1970s. Not to mention a immense financial and personnel investment. This is one of the most influential bodies in all of computer education for a long time. You know how Apple became the de facto computer that you found in schools? Every school's had Apple, right? Right. Now, I mean, Apple did deliberately push that, but one of the major reasons they were able to do that is very early on, they won the MECC contract when MECC was moving from timesharing to microcomputers. And so, you know, they had the most influential... (laughs) educational computing consortium in the entire country went to Apple. And, you know, just like today, so goes Texas and textbooks, so goes the nation. It's like, as Minnesota went in educational computing, so went the nation. This is a huge and unprecedented kind of thing. 
And Dale LaFrenz is there. Uh, he gets there through a circuitous route. Uh, but, you know, he had helped kind of sort of with you high and with ties. And now he is at MECC and Dale LaFrenz is responsible for running this thing. So one of Don Rawich's instructors knows LaFrenz, is friends with him. MECC, it's a, it's a not-for-profit. It's an educational consortium. It's good, solid, conscientious objector work. So a professor talks to the friends and is like, hey, I've got this kid. You know, he's conscientious objector. He needs something for the government, blah, blah, blah. And so Dale's like, yeah, okay, we'll find a place for him. They didn't necessarily need him at that moment, but, you know, friend doing for friend kind of thing. So uh, Rawich was made a liaison to uh, some community colleges that were part of the whole network. So, you know, MECC is, is getting going. It's providing computing all around the state. They need content. They need programs. They need stuff for people to use. It's their job now to make sure that every student in Minnesota is getting a nice, good, solid computer education. Hey, friend, have you heard of Oregon Trail? Right. So, you know, he's, he's told, you know, it's like, you know, he, so people are encouraged, you know, if you know of any programs, if you have any programs, let us know. And Don, because he did save this paper tape, is like, well, I've got this thing called Oregon Trail. Supplies and travel and hardship and blah, blah, blah. And Dale's like, great, we'll do it. We'll put that on the on the network. So he pulls out the tape, dusts it off. He changes some things because, you know, it was a kind of slapdash. Uh, well, slapdash is the wrong word, but it was thrown together in like a week and a half. I mean, they didn't have a lot of time to do all the research on it. So he did adjust some of the probabilities to make certain events more accurately reflected in terms of the probability of them happening in real life. Uh, you know, did some research about the trail and put some more depth into it. This is still not, you know, the more advanced Apple II version, obviously, that comes several years later. This is 1974 we're talking about now. And so he dusts it off, cleans it up a little bit, and boom, puts it on the MECC network. So now it is all across the state of Minnesota. So then flash forward, uh, and we'll just cover this briefly, but flash forward to the 80s. The MECC, as I said, is still one of the most influential guys around. Now we have microcomputers. Now all schools are getting around the country are getting lots and lots of these Apple computers, you know, in the mid-1980s. MECC has backed Apple. You know, they backed them very early. So the Apple II computer is the official computer of MECC. Well, MECC is looking for other ways to keep itself viable and keep itself sustainable. So it realizes at this point, it's like we have all of these educational games that we have made on our timesharing system. Oregon Trail is one of them. There's another little game called Lemonade Stand that you've probably heard of. Yep. And, you know, they had a few others like that as well. So they were like, we need to convert these to the microcomputer platforms today, and then we need to make these available. We need to sell these, <laughs> you know, because we're sitting on these and we know they're good. We've been using them. We need to get them out into the wider world. That'll make us some money. And so another guy, Philip Bouchard, is brought in to lead a team that converts Oregon Trail to Apple II in 1985. And like I said, that's when they had bells and whistles like forts and families and fording rivers and full graphics and all of this kind of stuff to this basic thing. It's essentially a complete rewrite from scratch, though obviously it maintains the spirit of the same Oregon Trail going all the way back to 1971. And so because they do that and because they start making that available and because every school in the country is using an Apple II... Just about anyone who ever had a computer class in the late 1980s uh, through the mid-1990s at least, if not longer, played Oregon Trail or saw Oregon Trail being played at least once in their school life. 
We had a lot of Oregon Trail at our school, didn't we, Jeff? Yeah, there were kind of fights over who got the consoles with Oregon Trail. Yeah, I don't know why every computer didn't have a copy. I mean, I'm sure it comes down to cost and licensing and this and that, but not every computer had Oregon Trail. And then even some of the ones that had Oregon Trail, I don't think had Lemonade Stand, because we also had Lemonade Stand. So yeah, there were only there were only a small number in the computer lab that had Oregon Trail, and those are the ones you wanted to be on, because our computer classes, they were... Interesting. They were not helpful as computer classes. Think of it this way, kids. We jumped from Apple IIs all the way to the glory that is Windows 95. That's right. Because <laughs> uh, in, in junior high school, which, you know, now we're dating ourselves, we, we graduated in 1996, and it was only about the last year, year and a half that we were there that they had built a new computer lab in, in a new building extension and got new computers. Before that, we were using Apple IIs, and they were teaching us computing logo and the little turtle man yeah i could run circles around <laughs> their stuff at home i had a better computer than they had at school and the computer assignments weren't difficult assignments so just about everybody got their official computer assignments done very quickly within the computer class time and so then you had all of this free time and you weren't allowed to just do whatever you had to be on the computer doing something and so, of course, those those machines that had Oregon Trail on them were highly prized because at that point you could play Oregon Trail and, and it was allowed. It was acceptable to do that. So, yeah, I mean, hugely influential, but only because of time sharing did it become this big thing. So Oregon Trail is kind of an outlier in the way it spread because it got into this large educational computing consortium. It happened to be made in, in the one state that created a statewide network. How did a program like Lunar Lander, to give another example, get spread around? That was a little different, and it really has to do with the informal networks that formed to kind of trade this software. The most important person in all of this was a guy named David All. David All was an electronics enthusiast from an early age, which for him meant uh, the 1950s. He wrangled himself a job at DEC, at Digital Equipment Corporation, in their educational department. Now, DEC tried to fight against BASIC. So BASIC, really? Yeah, BASIC was becoming the lingua francia of the uh, timesharing computing world. And DEC supported BASIC because they kind of had to. But they also created their own language called FOCAL, or FOCAL, I don't know how it was pronounced, but spelled like FOCAL, F-O-C-A-L. They created their own language called Focal and really tried to push that. But they also operated in BASIC as well. So what David All would do is he was responsible for a lot of the selling and liaisoning with school districts that might be interested in getting DEC educational systems. So what he decided would be a very effective weapon in this quest to get DEC into as many schools as possible was to have programs bundled up and sent out in newsletters that people could type in on their system so that there'd be a huge library ready to go right away. So what he started doing is he started trolling all of the school districts that were using DEC computers and all of the organizations using DEC computers and then within DEC itself as well. He started trolling all these organizations to find ready-made computer programs that he could package in the DEC educational newsletter that would then be sent out to all of the educational institutions using DEC timesharing systems. 
So this is how we start to see stuff spread. You may recall that I said Project Local, uh, which is where Lunar Lander was created, was using PDP-8s. They were using deck computers. So David All learned about Lunar Lander, and he scooped that up. It was originally written in Focal, not in Basic, because it was written on a deck computer. Scooped that up, packaged it in the newsletter, sent it out there. Another game that he discovered was this Sumerian game, this Hammurabi game, which had a very strange and convoluted history. Basically, there was uh, one of these intermediate school districts in uh, Westchester, New York, the Westchester BOSIS, that got a federal grant to explore in cooperation with IBM because IBM was headquartered in Armonk, New York, which is in Westchester County, which is where the Westchester School District is. So they got a grant and they worked with IBM to come up with some ideas for computer-assisted instruction. And they came up with the idea of, well, similar to the Huntington Project did a couple of years later, but this was before that. This was in the 62, 63, 64 time period. They came up with the idea of, we should make some simulation games that students can play and they'll learn something. And one of the teachers that was involved in all of this, Mabel Addis, she had actually studied in college uh, fairly rigorously. She had studied ancient Sumeria and Mesopotamia. This was a period of time when a lot of digs were going on in Iraq and Syria and in Mesopotamia, and we were learning more and more about some of those early civilizations. But it wasn't really being taught very well in schools yet, because this was kind of cutting edge. You know, this is we were just learning more and more about this. So she thought it would be fun to do a game where you take on the role of a Sumerian ruler of the city of Lagash and learn through resource management how civilization spread. So it was kind of a a three-part game. In the first part of the game, you're growing grain and you're balancing storing grain for lean years eating more grain to grow the population and you know just making sure that you're both expanding and keeping your current food supply kind of together in the face of disasters some years you might have bad crops etc so it's a game where you're expanding your agricultural base to slowly build your population then in phase 2 you start turning your food resources into technology resources essentially so it's your population is now big enough that not everybody has to be a farmer anymore, and you can start building up technology and building up your city more and and all of this kind of thing. And then in the third phase, uh, you're now big enough that you're starting to dominate the surrounding countryside, and so you start going out and interacting with other civilizations or or whatnot. The the second and third part of the game, they they haven't survived, so I, I can't go into a lot of detail. I mean, no, this is not civilization 20 years, 30 years before civilization. (laughs) I mean, it's not that complex. It's still text-based. It's still very simple interfaces. But, I mean, you know, it's kind of following some of the same principles that civilization would later follow in the sense that you're starting with a low level of population and technology and you're building up, but nowhere near the complexity. No tech trees, no diplomacy engine, no military units. I mean, let's not try to pretend this was civilization, but still, yeah, this this management game. And they built this thing up and they they worked with it a bit and they had they had it running. I mean it ran for a couple of years until they finally ran out of money. This was another 
project that had a National Science Foundation grant. So again, it's the same thing about the government coming in and providing a lot of money for technical education, in large part, though not entirely, because of the space race with the Soviet Union. So they created this game, and this was pre-time sharing. So this is another example of what I'm saying, the same thing with Oregon Trail. So this original game is totally gone. Oregon Trail, we were fortunate that Don Rawich saved that one paper tape copy, so then when it was time to deploy it again, he had his basic code base. Literally had his basic code base, I suppose, but I meant his fundamental code base. This game was not on a time-sharing system because this was early 60s, 62, 63, 64. When this project was shut, shut down, that was just gone. Now, flash forward to 1968. DEC is now heavily involved in time-sharing. And because they're heavily involved in education and time-sharing, they're going to educational conferences, educational computing conferences, and, and learning about this and that. So a DEC employee named Doug Diamond, a Canadian, goes to a conference, an educational computing conference, and somehow ends up talking to a woman. And I have no idea if this woman is Mabel Addis or not. That part of the story is lost. Uh, Devin Monins, a, a great researcher on earlier video game history, is the one that I should give full credit to for unraveling this story about the Sumerian game in Hammurabi. Because for the longest time, Doug Dimet was thought to be the originator of Hammurabi. Then we started noticing, and Devin was one of the people, but several people started noticing that there was also this Sumerian game. That has to be connected somehow, right? It's too coincidental uh, because they're identical kind of games. But it was Devin that was able to connect the dots and actually show us the connection between the earlier game and the later game. And that connection is that Doug Diamond went to this educational conference and a woman, maybe Mabel Addis, maybe somebody else, told him about this game she remembered seeing once, or if it was actually Mabel, <laughs> a game she created once, I don't know, and described this whole thing with the Sumerians and the grain and, and all of this. And Doug Diamond thought that was kind of neat and decided it would be a great demo program to do in Focal. Now, because he wanted it to be a demo program for a basic Focal system, he had to do it in 4K because the, that was the smallest memory environment that the Focal programming language would operate in. So with just 4K to work with, he couldn't do this elaborate three-stage game. That was too much. So he just collapsed it down to the first phase, which is you are growing grain, you are harvesting grain, you are deciding how much grain to consume, you are deciding how much grain to store, and you are growing your population over time. And because he was not a Sumerian scholar, he wanted to put a more famous name on it. So instead of being uh, Laduga 1, Laduga 2, and Laduga 3 of the city-state of Lagash, he moved it to Babylonia, because everyone knew Babylon, and he changed it to the famous lawgiver, Hammurabi. And so that's how we get from the original Sumerian game, done in the early 60s, to Hammurabi, that was done in 1968 by Doug Diamond, based on this earlier game. Did you ever play a, a Hammurabi variant? No, I did not. Yeah, they, they were, I mean, I didn't as a kid either, but they were, they were very, very widespread. And so Deck Employee creates this Hammurabi game, so that gets back to David All. All of these kind of games get back to David All, and he's distributing these games across the country 
to deck computer users. And then he decides to do something even more radical. And in 1973, he puts out a book, Deck actually publishes, called 101 Basic Computer Games. Have you ever heard of that one? No, it's, no. No yeah, I mean, that ever I, existed. I mean, we're a little young for it. I mean, you know, I mean, it was, it was a big deal back in its day, but its day was slightly before us. And it's exactly what it says it is. He went out, you know, all of these games that he'd found, he converted them into basic, if they weren't already, like Lunar Lander had started in Focal. And Hammurabi had started in Focal, but for this he converted them to basic and just made this book available, you know, for purchase for anybody who wanted it. And it had 101 computer games in it. Most of them were just number puzzles, logic puzzles, primitive board games. Most of them, you know, 101 games, but like 85 of them were just interchangeable, like guess the number, (laughs) locate the coordinate kind of whatever games. But Lunar Lander's in there. Hammurabi's in there. This book stays in circulation for years. He republishes it in 1978. By 1978, microcomputers have come. The Trinity has arrived. People are hungry for games. Because at this point, 1978, there are not very many professional computer games out there. We've talked about some of the early computer game companies. Really, before about the year 1978, there were barely any computer game companies. And before 1980, there really weren't that many compelling commercial games. There were a few, but there weren't many. And so people were starved for content. So on that 1978 re-release, that book becomes the first computer book to sell one million copies. So these people are buying the book. They're typing it in. David All, after he leaves DEC in 1974, founds the magazine Creative Computing, which was the first consumer magazine dedicated to computers. He's putting the listings to all of these programs in there, too. Creative Computing features them. Creative Computing even starts boxing some of these games and selling them, publishing them itself on on tape or on disc. So all of these early games that David All has collected, like Lunar Lander and Hammurabi, that were created on timesharing systems, end up being distributed either through 101 Basic Computer Games, through Creative Computing. Of course, as people get a hold of these games, they create their own variations on these games and submit them to other magazines as type-in listings, or because they're public domain and they can put them together cheaply, put them out for sale. So you see a lot of the earliest popular computer games are coming out of this continuum from time-sharing systems to all's books and magazines and then on into the greater world. Probably the most popular of those. I mean, the most, the most influential time-sharing game over time was Oregon Trail, but Oregon Trail was not disseminating in this way. It was not in 101 basic computer games. It was not in creative computing. It was just in Minnesota until in the 80s they started distributing it on microcomputers. The single most influential game of all of these was a little game called Star Trek. And I know, even though you haven't played the super-duper original text-based print-out-the-grid-on-a-teletype Star Trek, I know you have played Star Trek, sir, because you and I played it together several times in your house. Well, yes. 
We had that nice split screen. We had docking. We had Klingons. We had death. Energy. And energy. Phasers and photon torpedoes. And running out of energy and dying horribly. Exactly. So that game that we were playing together in the early 1990s, the germ of that game, just like with Oregon Trail, goes all the way back to the year 1971. And it was born in uh, the University of California at Irvine, created by a high school student named Mike Mayfield. Mike Mayfield was one of these tech guys, one of these guys really interested in technology and all of that. And he discovered the computer lab at UC Irvine. And there were a couple of computers in there. There was a deck computer in there. And then there was uh, something called a Sigma 7 mainframe in there as well. Just created by another mini computer company in California. And, you know, again, it's just a teletype. A lot of stuff's just teletype at this point. There aren't that many monitors. And, you know, he thought that was kind of cool. And so he uh, borrowed an account on that Sigma 7 computer. Borrowed. Borrowed. Jeff. You work in network administration. Yeah. You work in network administration at a time when most people have at least had computers in their lives for a long time. Somewhat. And you know how very bad so many people are sometimes about securing their accounts, information, etc. on their work computer systems. Maybe. Now imagine a time when computers are brand new for everybody and nobody has really given any kind of thought to network security whatsoever. You mean most of the times computers have existed? Yeah, yes, but this, but this period's even worse than today because this is right at the beginning of the concept of user accounts and all of that kind of thing. Ah, that's sort of like how we treat our Netflix accounts these days. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. So let's just say that user accounts were often not very secure, both on the IT side of things in that network security was not well advanced yet, and on the user side of things where... You know, I mean, obviously, a lot of people today still have those kind of problems, but oh, you come know. on, we're just going to log in at Bob H with the password Bob Five. Yes, that that will go swimmingly for everybody. So, yes, Mister Mayfield, high school student, borrowed a user account on the Sigma Seven. But whose user account did he borrow? Was it that professor over there, or that professor over there? Or was it a different professor every day of the week? I don't know. It could be any of the above. We'll find out today on Where Are My Credentials? So this uh, Sigma 7 computer that he was able to get some access to had a display, but he was never able to get access to that display because he was kind of ad hocking all of this. (laughs) But... They actually did have a port of Space War on that computer because it's, you know, it's by 1971, Space War is everywhere where computers have monitors pretty much. So he saw Space War. He saw the space shooting thing and was like, I'd like to make a game like that. He's trying to learn computers. He's teaching himself basic out of a book. And he's like, I want to make something like that. But he doesn't have access to a monitor, so he can't just clone that. So he and some of his friends get together and they brainstorm and they like Star Trek because this is the period of time when Star Trek is actually starting to get popular with kind of that age group. 
you know, Star Trek was a show in the late 60s. It, as most people who are aficionados probably know, it was canceled after its second season. Big letter writing campaign saved it, but the ratings were still terrible and the show quality went downhill because nobody cared anymore after it was brought back from the dead. And so it was canceled after three seasons. It never got particularly popular. But then it went into syndication in the early 1970s and college students fell in love with it in the early 1970s in syndication. And that's really when Star Trek started its path towards the big franchise that it is today, not in the late 1960s when it aired, but in the early 1970s when college students were exposed to it. So, I mean, he was a high school student, but still, he's, he's about the age of the people that are discovering Star Trek and syndication in the early 1970s. So he and his friends like Star Trek a lot. They're big fans. So they're like, well, we'll do a Star Trek game. But it has to be turn-based. It can't be real time because all they have is the teletype. And again, you can't do a real time game on teletype because you'd be drowning in paper after 10 minutes. So they come up and I don't know all the details. I mean, a couple of people, including uh, Ethan Johnson, our good friend of the show, have talked to Mike Mayfield. But after this many years, I mean, there's not really details on where did this feature come from? Where did that feature come from? So I don't know that. But They do come up with this turn-based game where they have a grid that represents the galaxy. And again, that's useful in the teletype setting because it gives you a visual aid you can print out. Because using ASCII characters, you can kind of print out a grid-based map. There's a grid that represents the galaxy. And then each quadrant of the galaxy is its own grid that then opens up when you travel there. And there are Klingon ships within that block of space that you've chosen to go into. You have a limited amount of energy to devote to shields, weapons, propulsion. You have phasers, which are variable in their power depending on how much power you decide to use in each shot. And you have photon torpedoes, which are incredibly powerful, essentially instant kill, but you have to properly aim them. You have to do the trajectories to make sure that they they hit the other ship. So they're more difficult to use, but more powerful, as opposed to phasers, which are easy to use. It's just point and shoot, but the power varies. So your job was to go around each quadrant of the galaxy and destroy each Klingon ship there. Uh, Of course, you lose energy, you take damage as you go along. There are also star bases scattered around the galaxy, and you can go to these star bases and replenish your energy and all of that stuff. Uh, In this very first version, it was very primitive. The Klingons didn't even move. But, you know, there's a certain number of Klingon ships. You attack them, they attack you, balance energy, shields, weapons, kill everybody, win the game. This was Star Trek. The journey of Star Trek perfectly illustrates this entire ecosystem that was beginning to develop for the sharing of games. And so uh, we're going to conclude this episode by just looking at the journey it took to become literally the most prolific game on early microcomputers. I mean, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, there was probably barely a, a microcomputer that was owned by somebody who was interested in games that didn't have Star Trek on it someplace. And Star tons- Trek, The Great Journey. <laughs> yes. And tons of timesharing systems had it on as well. So the Sigma may have been timesharing. I'm not sure. But the Sigma was really he couldn't really keep it on the Sigma. He wasn't he wasn't legitimate there. He saved the code, but it couldn't really stay on this Sigma system because he didn't have the uh, the authorization or the authority. So he has his game code and he also has a brand new HP calculator. A programmable one. So a pretty fancy one. So he's been making trips to the local HP sales office, talking to them about programming on the calculator and all of that stuff. And somehow through all of this, uh, they learn that he has 
this game that he's made, the Star Trek game. And they're like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, even though basic is a lingua franca, as we said, something that is widely understood across all of computing, we did briefly talk about as well how you have to interpret basic for each individual system that it's on. The basic that Dex's using on its computers, the basic that's being used on Sigma, they are slightly different basics. The commands point in different directions because there's an interpreter sitting between the high-level programming language and the actual processor to make everything run effectively. So they get wind of his game and are like, oh, that's very interesting. If you convert that into HP basic, we'll put it into our contributed programming library. DEC had the educational newsletter that David All was doing, so they were sending out programs. HP, which was their main competitor in many computers and whose HP 2000 mini computer line was also finding its way into schools, they had what was called a contributed program library where anybody could submit programs written in HP Basic and they'd maintain this giant catalog of programs. And then anyone who was interested in a program could peruse that catalog and be like, oh, these programs look cool. I want this, 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 and this. Because this was at a time, and we've talked about this before, where there really wasn't much of a software industry yet. You bought hardware, and the hardware company supplied software at no additional cost. I mean, the cost of hiring programmers and having programmers make software was factored into the cost of your computer, but software wasn't a la carte. It's like, you have our system, and now you have access to our whole variety of software programs that we have. And maybe if you need something custom and specialized, we'll build that for you for a fee. But most software is just included. Uh, by the early 1970s, you have the first software company starting to form. But software is still the idea of software as a valuable and marketable commodity all on its own is still very new. And, uh, you know, that's actually important to bring up because that's another reason why all of these programs could spread so freely and effectively because people weren't thinking of software yet as something you sold. You sold hardware and then you provided software. So Star Trek gets placed in the HP Contributed Program Library. And David All discovers it in that Contributed Program Library because David All is always looking for interesting programs that he can incorporate into his deck catalog. All sees it in the HP Contributed Program Library and publishes it in 101 Basic Computer Games. So it's one of the games in 101 Basic Computer Games that starts spreading around the country. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't. Next, an engineer named Bob Leadham, who works for Westinghouse, he sees the Star Trek game which, uh, incidentally, David All actually published under the name Space War in 101 Basic Computer Games. It's called Space War. It's not our Space War that we spent a whole episode on, the pioneering game. That's just what he chose to call it. I'm sure he didn't call it Star Trek because Star Trek is kind of a trademark. Mm-hmm. So he just called it a generic name, Space War. So Bob Leadham sees the Space War game while he's working at Westinghouse and decides to convert it to the data general system that they have there. So it keeps getting converted in these basics. It starts in Sigma 7 basic. Then it gets converted to HP basic. Then David All converts it to DEX basic. Then Bob Leadham converts it to data general's basic. Data general being another mini computer company. We talked about them in the context of uh, computer space. 
There's no way this game spreads around the country in the same way if it's not in a language like basic that is so easy to do. Because converting it from one basic to another is most of the time just changing a couple lines of code. Because the instructions are the same. The syntax is the same. It's just that some of the calls are a little different (laughs) is really all it is, right? Instead of print, it's printf or funny print. (laughs) Right. You know, it's very easy to move it around. So this game wouldn't have spread from a Sigma system to an HP system to a DEX system to a data general system if you had had to do it in assembly each time. It would have been too much work. Nobody would have bothered doing it. But because it's so easy to move a basic program from system to system, it's spreading around all these people across all of these different systems and it's getting noticed. So Bob Leadham ports it over to this data general system and decides that he's going to make it even more elaborate. So he creates a version that's uh, slightly improved over the original Mayfield version. For one thing, he makes it so the Klingons can move around, the Klingon vessels. Originally, they were static. Now they move after you as well. He also added in reports from the crew members, from Spock or Sulu or whoever else, you know, just to add a little bit of flavor to it, you know, giving damage reports or all of that kind of stuff. He improved the calculations for things like photon torpedoes, made that a little more user-friendly. He created a better galaxy table. So he, he created a lot of these little improvements to make it uh, a better game than the Mayfield game. And then he submitted it to an organization called the People's Computer Company. So I told you way back earlier in this episode that our friend Bob Albrecht was going to get back into the story. Well, Bob Albrecht as we said, had a life-changing experience when he was exposed to BASIC and when he was exposed to students using BASIC. Hello, brother. Have I told you the word of BASIC? So Bob Albrecht was a Minnesota guy, but his experience with computers and with working with students in computers actually happened after he took a job out in Colorado. He moved to Colorado basically because he liked skiing And there were a lot of computer companies that were starting to open up facilities in the Denver area. So he left Minnesota to go work for Burroughs Corporation, which was another one of these seven dwarves competing with IBM. After a couple of years there, he went to work for another company, and then he ended up at CDC, Control Data, because they opened a new facility in Denver. Minnesota company, but now they've got this facility in Colorado as well. Part of his job there was actually to teach CDC employees programming. They would get a lot of these guys that would go through like a week-long IBM Fortran course and come out of it actually knowing absolutely nothing about Fortran, get hired by CDC, and then need remedial instruction on how to actually use this darn programming language. In his spare time, I guess because he enjoyed the teaching aspect, though I'm not exactly sure why, He also started working with a local high school, kind of an upper middle class high school in Denver, and working with them on learning Fortran and learning computers because CDC had just come out with something called the CDC 160 that was a mini computer before people realized what mini computers were. This is about 1963 we're talking about here. And there was no mini computer category yet, but the CDC 160 was really one of the really early ones. And this is where he had his life-changing experience, was with these kids in this Denver school on the CDC computer. And he was just amazed at how they took to Fortran. We're not even talking about something simple like basic. We're talking about how easily he felt they even took to Fortran. And he became convinced that this was something that 
young people can grasp, that young people can learn, and that young people really should learn for similar reasons to our Dartmouth friends that computers are going to be a part of everybody's future. So he gets more and more involved in teaching students, and then he ends up taking a job back with CDC in Minneapolis, in which his job is to actually go around the country and give little demos to schools and other places about computing. By this time, he has become convinced of the value of educating students. He had actually paid a trip to California while he was still working in Denver because CDC was thinking about using a computer that had just bought out from another company called the G15, a small computer, as an educational computer in schools. This was before DEC was doing it, before all these other guys were doing it. So they sent him to San Francisco, and he spent a few days talking to a guy named Sidney Fernbach who was a very important early computer pioneer at the uh, Livermore Laboratories there in San Francisco. They kind of talked about computer education and computers for kids and the future of computing and how computing was going to get more affordable. And this really sparked Albrecht. So he went back to his job in CDC and he started kind of taking his instruction of kids thing kind of around the country, traveling around. After a while, he decided he wanted to leave the corporate job uh, and go into freelance writing. He figured that if he was going to be a freelance writer and he could live anywhere, why should he freeze to death in Minnesota when he can go work in nice, sunny California? So he relocates to the San Francisco area. Uh, At first, just to be a freelance writer. That's all he was planning to do. But then he got in with another guy named Dick Raymond, who had worked at the Stanford Research Institute. Raymond was really keen on expanding computer use and expanding education and computers in the same way Albrecht was. He was also kind of tinged with this kind of hippie atmosphere that had pervaded San Francisco during this time period, this idea of revolutions and liberating people and putting in people in touch with this new technology. And so the two of them actually get together and found something that they call the Portola Institute to be kind of an instructional, learn various things, not just computers idea. Albrecht, since he's into freelance writing, creates a subsidiary of Portola called Dimax, which is meant to be kind of a computer book publisher. Then they get a space in a Menlo Park shopping mall, and in addition to having their offices there, as part of Dimax, they open up this computer terminal area where anyone can come in and play around with the teletypes that they have there that are tied into time-sharing mainframes. And as the final step of this, they decide to create a central hub where everyone can keep track of all the great new things happening in computing for ordinary people on time-sharing systems or whatnot all around the country. And so Bob Albrecht founds this newsletter called The People's Computer Company, or PCC for short. This becomes another one of the great early hubs, along with David All's creative computing, for programs. They start printing the program listings for programs in BASIC. One of the very first interesting things that they do is they end up learning about a Pittsburgh project at the University of Pittsburgh called Project Solo. And Project Solo is another one of these computer-assisted instruction, computers for students, yada, yada, yada kind of projects going on, similar to Project Local or the Huntington Computer Project. You know, these things are popping up everywhere. Some students at Project Solo in Pittsburgh 
came up with this hide and seek, find the coordinate game. They literally called it hide and seek. You have a, a Cartesian coordinate system, XY, and you have three points in the system that are occupied. And your job is in the shortest number of moves possible to figure out which of those coordinates have the dots in them. So, you know, each time you type in a coordinate, you get clues about the, there's something X coordinates away or whatever. And so you refine almost like Battleship, essentially, except, you know, with more explicit uh, use of XY coordinates in your in your typing in until you find these three things. Well, the people at the PCC were very uh, interested in this program. And so they created their own version of it called Hercule, which was basically the same kind of game. They limited it to just one point instead of three, but you're finding the Hercule, which is just some fictional monster creature or something. Mm-hmm. Well, then a guy named Gregory Yob, who was a frequent visitor to the PCC offices, saw this Hercule game and another one called Mugwump that was very similar and was like, okay, hide and seek, that's kind of fun, but it's on a flat Cartesian plane. That's just boring. I mean, you know, you type in a coordinate, you type in another coordinate, you type in another coordinate, you found it. You know, it's like, where's the fun in that? So he was like, you know, it'd be really cool is if you took one of these hide and seek games. Instead of on a Cartesian coordinate plane, you did a dodecahedron where every point of the dodecahedron is a room and every line of the dodecahedron is a doorway or a passageway connecting those rooms. So you're essentially creating a virtual dungeon space, so to speak, in the shape of a dodecahedron. And so, you know, all of these games, Hercule, you're finding the Hercule, Mugwump, you're finding the Mugwumps. So he decides that in his dodecahedron, you're going to find the Wumpus. (laughs) And the Wumpus is a creature that inhabits one of these rooms. If you enter the room with the Wumpus, you're gone. He eats you. If you shoot an arrow into a room and the Wumpus isn't there, the Wumpus moves to another room. So what you have to do is you have to map out this entire dodecahedron. And, you know, each time you go in a room, it it gives you an indication of where the the wumpus is relative to your current position. So you have to map out this dodecahedron and figure out which room the wumpus is in and triangulate it, essentially, and then shoot an arrow into that room to kill the wumpus. And there are a few other wrinkles. There are pits. There are bats that'll move you around. So there's some other stuff that adds some more elements of danger and more elements of random chance to it so that you can't just... It's not an automatic win every time. It's not that you'll always be able to corner the wumpus and then then kill it. These random things like pits and bats make it so that there's an element of chance to it as well. And so he creates this game, Hunt the Wumpus, which is another one of these games, incidentally, that just spreads everywhere. I don't know if you're familiar with Wumpus or not. No, I'm not. No, it's it's another one. I mean, again, it was done in 72, 73. I mean, it's it's before our time, but like these other games, it proliferated into more modern times as well and was on all of these early computer systems. So that was one of the big things that PCC published. They published that in their newsletter, and they also published it in their book. They did a book similar to 101 Basic Computer Games called uh, What to Do After You Hit Return, PCC Book of Computer Games. They released their own book of computer games. So, you know, they're well-known nationwide, not just in the California area. So when Bob Leadham finishes his update to Star Trek, he sends it to the PCC guys. And then the PCC guys publish his version of Star Trek. Well, this happens just in time for 
Dave at all to be leaving DEC and starting Creative Computing in 1974. So then Dave at all, who at his new Creative Computing, is still wanting to find as many programs as he can and release as many programs as he can as type-in listings in his magazine, sees the Leadum version of Star Trek in the PCC materials. And so then he turns around and publishes it in Creative Computing. Which is funny because it came from all, it went from all to Leadum to Albrecht to all. It mm-hmm. like took this giant loop. But in the middle of this loop, the game became improved and became an even better game, you know? Mm-hmm. So you've got all of these networks coming together. You have all of these magazines, organizations, computer books, all of this percolating. So you have the time-sharing systems where all this stuff originates. And then you have the microcomputers coming in. You have your Apple IIs coming in, your Commodore pets coming in, all of that. And in between them, you have this whole series of organizations like the PCC, magazines like Creative Computing, books like 101 Basic Computer Games that are taking some of the more popular games on the time-sharing networks and making them publicly available in a format that anyone can easily discover them. And because we have BASIC tying this whole thing together, you can take these games from all of these time-sharing systems and you can run them on your Apple II. You can run them on your Trash 80. You can run them on your Commodore system. And so they make the jump from the time-sharing age to the microcomputer age, and because everyone is so starved for content, and because all of these programs are essentially public domain, they just spread like wildfire. And so Star Trek, Hunt the Wumpus, Oregon Trail, Lunar Lander, they all become these big, constantly shared games, and then they start evolving graphics. Star Trek, it's graphics, like the version that we played. Lunar Lander, a guy named Jack Burness, Uh, who's working for NASA, has access to a computer, a mini computer with a graphics terminal. He gets Lunar Lander, and he creates a graphical version of it in 1973. And that graphical version is the basic setup that forms the basis for the Atari arcade game, because the Atari people see that version at that NASA facility and kind of create basically the same basic landscape on memory from what they saw at NASA. So that's, that's how we get from Lunar Lander text-based game to Lunar Lander vector graphics arcade game. Oregon Trail gets the graphical update on the Apple. So these games are allowed to live on into an even more advanced era because they start getting graphics. They start getting those trappings of what people want in computer programs in the early to mid-1980s. And it just keeps going and going. And it's all thanks to, really, the Dartmouth timesharing system, Kimini and Kurtz, coming up with this idea that everyone's going to use computers and everyone needs a language that they can understand. That's why, I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that the birth of computer gaming really started, they can't take credit for everything, but a large part of it really started at Dartmouth with those two professors and, and a dream of, of universal computing. Well, that's fantastic. It really amazes me just how prolific BASIC was and still is to allow all of this proliferation. And then you had this almost perfect storm of cross-communication, type-in listings, books, people just discovering it on the system. And because BASIC allows you to just rewrite it, just changing a few little minor things in order to allow a program to go onto a whole bunch of different systems, it's just amazing that a lot of these games even survive to this day. Absolutely. All right. Now that we're done with computers, 
at least for now. What do we delve into in our next episode? Well, it's been a while since we've got a game series. And of all the game series ever made, there's probably none quite so significant as the Super Mario Brothers series. One, two, three, that one that came before one. There have been a lot of Mario games, and I don't think we should probably try to cover them all, but this uh, this is a, a very important franchise, and there's been a fair amount of co- information that's come out about it uh, in the last few years uh, in English, thanks to a variety of sources, such as Schmupplation's translations, as well as the old Iwata Asks interviews, so... Maybe uh, it's time we, we kind of took a look at the, the evolution of Mario. Obviously, we've talked about some of this before. We've touched on Nintendo. We've touched on Miyamoto. We can't help but touch on some of these subjects in earlier podcasts, but this would be the first time that we take a, a more in-depth look at kind of how at least the early part of that series developed. So, sure, Super Mario. Wrecking Crew. That had Mario in it. I suppose it did. All right. All the Mario. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roll of Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 